What's up, guys? Welcome to episode three of the FFP. I'm your host, Rob Serra. Joining me this week will be FDNY captain, published author, my older brother, Andrew Serra. Frankie's back to bring us another episode of Frankie's Firehouse Feasts, where she discusses how to make one of her Uncle Andy's favorite firehouse meals. But before we get to that, last week, the NFPA Standards Council voted down an emergency measure to eliminate the testing requirement that the moisture barrier in firefighters' gear must withstand 40 hours of exposure to ultraviolet light. This requirement essentially guarantees that our gear contains harmful, cancer-causing PFAS or forever chemicals. While I understand the need for a moisture barrier in our gear, what I don't understand is why it needs to withstand 40 hours of ultraviolet light. You have to ask yourself, who's benefiting from these chemicals being in our gear? Because it's certainly not benefiting us to have it in there, with the cancer rates going up the way they are. So, how do we address this? I don't know. I'm not in this game yet. However, there are people out there fighting it. Maybe get involved, call your unions, do whatever you got to do. But we need to get rid of these chemicals yesterday. What we could do right now on a personal level is maybe stop wearing our gear so much. You know, I see these videos on TV all the time or, you know, on YouTube of firefighters playing basketball in their gear, doing all these 9-11 stair climbs in their gear. All this stuff is unnecessary. Listen, I get it. Everyone wants to pay tribute to the 343 brothers who climbed those stairs that day. I get it. But you don't have to put yourself in harm's way to do it. You know, put on a pair of gym shorts and a pair of sneakers. You know, you're still doing the same thing. You're just not exposing yourself to these cancer-causing chemicals. So please, stop wearing your gear when you don't have to. If you're going on a run, yeah, put your gear on. If you're not, if you're hanging out around the firehouse, if you're going shopping, if you're doing anything that doesn't require you wearing your bunker gear, don't wear it. Expect to hear more about these cancer-causing chemicals in our gear from me in the future. This issue is not going away until those chemicals go away. Congress, please don't make me come down there. But for this week's roll call... I want to tell you this quick story about my mom. Yesterday was the 26th anniversary of her passing. I was just 15 years old. But on the day I was born, I had the umbilical cord wrapped around my leg. It was blue, indented, and the doctors wanted to amputate. So the doctor came into my mother's room, handed her a clipboard and a pen, and said, here, ma'am, sign this release so we can cut off your child's leg. My mother looked at him, threw him the clipboard, said, you're the doctor. Fix it. That was my mother, teaching me to fight from day one. Now let's get straight to it and hear from another person who taught me how to fight. Andy Sarah. With me today is none other than my oldest brother, Andrew. Um, He's the oldest of three, so he gets to find out what it's like to be number three this week. Andrew, welcome. How's it going, Rob? Good, good. Uh, Andy is the captain of FDNY Ladder 20 in Soho. Um, He's also the reason that I became a firefighter. So a question I've always wanted to ask Andy is, what made you want to become a firefighter? Because I know you always wanted to be one, and uh, I never asked you why. Uh, I mean, you're right. It is something I always thought about growing up. you know, we, we were exposed to it in the sense that, you know, our mother, um, you know, she grew up with her dad being a firefighter. So it was something that was always, I guess, talked about from her, but she was always very subtle about it. If you remember, she never pushed it on us or really, you know, was over the top with steering us in any particular career path. She just, you know, 
just enough to, to, you know, put it in the back of our minds. And when the test came out, you know, she got the applications for us. And, uh, and, you know, I think that, you know, it had a, the desired effect, you know, I think had she been uh, more forceful, it might've backfired, you know, and um, being, you know, also, you know, with us growing up with uh, dad, you know, with trucks, every, you know, driving trucks and working on trucks, I think it was a way, you know, knowing I wanted to go into public service and be able to help people. It was a perfect fit. I got to help people and be around trucks. So it was uh, the best of both worlds. Right. You know, I I mean, it's hard for me to remember much. Um, you know, I was 15 when she passed away, but I never remember her talking to me directly about becoming a, a firefighter. I do remember, though, is that she seemed to gravitate to other firefighters, right? Like her friends were, were either the wives of firefighters or the, the sons or daughters or even firefighters themselves. You know, I noticed like, like now that I look back, like the parents on the hockey teams that I played on, she seemed to hang out with the, with the ones who were firemen. Right. Um, right. On Staten Island, it's a 50, 50. Yeah. Right. Right. And I think, you know, had you maybe towards the end of high school or when you were in college, maybe, you know, when you really did start to think about what career you were going into, I think she probably might have talked about it more with you, you know, or but she was, you know, you know how she was. Had had I had something else in mind, if if I would, you know, not that I could have, but if I wanted to be a nuclear physicist, she would have been finding out, you know, the, the best information on how to do that. You know, she would have uh, supported us, I think, no matter what. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, I guess we'll never know. Right. Um, but so you took the test and when did you take the test? Like the early 90s, right? Like 91 and 92, something like that. 92. And yeah. it took you seven years to get on. What, what, yeah. what was that about? Six and a half. There was a there was a class action suit uh, and there was a hiring freeze for a number of years and, and stuff. Um, and they didn't start hiring off the list, I think, until the summer of 1995. So. Right. So you, you, you didn't feel like waiting. Right. So that's why you, uh, you went to the dark side at first. Yeah. I took the test right, right around the same time, police fire, you know, all the tests that came out and, uh, I was driving a truck at the time and, uh, waiting, you know, for the fire department and, uh, the police department called me first. So, uh, you know, I went in the police Academy in, uh, the spring of 97. Yeah. Right. And, and just for the record, what was your list number for the fire department? Uh, if I remember correctly, it was 2129, I think. Okay. Cause I just wanted our list to know that mine was 281. Um, I just wanted to file that in the record. Uh, <laughs> all right. So you transferred over 98, right? Um, it's kind of, it was a hazy time for me. I think that was my freshman year of college. Um, so I might've been busy. Uh, so I apologize if I didn't make it to your graduation, but, uh, uh, you know, I had other things going on. Um, so you got out 98 and where'd you go? Uh, Red Hook, uh, ladder 131. Ladder 131. Yeah. That was, uh, so that, that was your first stop, right? And you, you had to leave for a couple of years, but how long were you there the first time? Uh, just about a year. I got there in November and, uh, stayed there, uh, to the following year. And then the following October, they, back then they used to do the training rotation every October. So we had to go. You did, you know, the first three years, you did three different stops. And then at the end, you went back to your first stop. Right. 
Cool. So, so let's talk about 131 for a bit before we move on to, uh, to the other companies you worked in. So what, what, what stands out about your time 131? Did you have anybody who, who were your mentors there? Cause I know you had a lot of people that you look up to. Yeah. I mean, I have to say everywhere I went, I was very lucky. You know, I had great officers, great captains and, uh, senior men who always took pride in the place and looked out for the probies and the new guys. And, uh, you know, it was great. Uh, you know, um, you know, we, uh, two guys that, you know, stand out, you know, really, uh, that come to mind quickly, uh, is, uh, Lieutenant Tom Coleman and, uh, Jerry Sweeney, who was one of the senior, he wasn't a super senior man at that, at that time. He had about seven, eight years more than I did, but he was one of those guys that always took charge and all. And, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I, funny story. I was thinking about, you know, fairly recently, a, a story I completely forgot about, uh, working with those two, uh, with, uh, Lieutenant Coleman and Jerry Sweeney. Uh, when I was a probie, we were relocated one night to, um, to Flatbush right around the change of tours. Uh, we were, uh, relocated to 157 truck and we were there for a couple of hours. And, uh, then they came back from their job and they went back in service and, uh, we start driving back to Red Hook. And, uh, I remember, you know, uh, the rigs were a little bit different back then. Uh, there was no speakers on the back of the rig and there was plexiglass between, uh, where the guys in the back step sat and the officer and the chauffeur in the front. So we really didn't know a, a whole lot what was going on. Usually on the way to a, a box or something, if it, if it sounded like a job, the officer would bang on the plexiglass to let the guys know, uh, you know, that they gave a 1075 or something like that. But, um, we're just driving. And I remember, uh, I think Lieutenant Coleman turned around and said, uh, you know, sounds like we got something or, you know, I found out after, I think, uh, they just happened to read off, uh, a phone alarm that was coming in and, uh, it was basically on our route home, you know, uh, I, I don't think we were assigned to it though. You know, I think, uh, he tried to get us put on the box and the dispatcher said same service, something like that, but we ended up driving up on it. And, uh, and there, uh, it was like a six story apartment building and fire on the first floor. And we were in by ourselves, you know, it was, uh, it Fireman's was a dream, right? Especially yeah, a truck it, guy's dream. It's, uh, we get the Lieutenant Coleman and Jerry Sweeney had the irons. I had the can of course being the probie and I'm um, following them in, just trying to keep up, you know, grab, grab my, uh, grab my hook, grab my can. I'm running after them. And, uh, we get to the door, Jerry, uh, Jerry popped the door open. It was locked. And, uh, you know, thick black smoke starts pushing out. We had the mask up right at the door and, uh, we go in and, and I remember, uh, Lieutenant Coleman, this was, uh, it, this was not SOP at the time, but he, he turned to Jerry Sweeney. He said, stay at the door, keep it closed, you know, not to, to give the, uh, the fire fresh air and to act as a beacon being that we had no hose line. Uh, so Jerry stayed at the door and it was a pretty big apartment. So we, uh, we start crawling in and the fire's in the kitchen and, uh, it's one of them, like, the kitchen and the living room are kind of like an open concept. And then in the back of the apartment were the bedrooms. So the fire is going in the kitchen and, uh, Lieutenant Coleman tells me, uh, you know, st stay here at the kitchen, just try and hold the fire back. I'm going to make a quick search. So I'm there at the, at this archway trying to hit it with the can, you know, two and a half gallons. It, it, it only goes so far, mm -hmm. you know, in the top of the arch, hitting the ceiling, trying to push it back, just trying to hold it in there. You know, uh, the, the kitchen's going really well now. And, uh, Next thing you know, it's it's rolling out past the arch uh, along the the living room ceiling over my head, 
and uh, the the can the can position did not have radios back then. Uh, you know that, that wouldn't be until I think after nine eleven they gave all everybody uh, gets a radio now. But back then the can didn't have a radio, so I couldn't call Lieutenant Coleman to tell him that you know I was out of water and the fire was getting past me. Uh, so I start to back up as the fire is rolling over my head. Now it, it basically the whole entire kitchen flashes over and now it's, you know, starting to consume the liver. I, I back up and I kind of crouched behind a couch just to kind of get some cover from it. And uh, Jerry Sweeney, who was still at the door, you know, he, he he's thinking that I'm in the kitchen because the last he could see me, I was in the kitchen with the can trying to hold it back. So I, I see him, you know, I just see like the reflector on his pant leg go flying past me as I'm behind the couch. I hear him screaming, you know, Andy, Andy, and he, he dove into the kitchen, uh, trying to trying to get me out. So now <laughs> I had to like lean forward and, and like grab his leg and pull him back, and uh, and pull him out. And now now we're both behind this couch, and he says to me, you know, where, where's Coleman? I said he's in the back in the bedroom. He goes, all right, come on. So me and Jerry start crawling along the wall, trying to get to the bedrooms, and we come to a, a bend, and we we run, you know, smack dab right into. Lieutenant Coleman, you know, we bump into him and, and he's cradling something. And, and he, and he also goes, come on, let's get out of here. And we both followed him and followed the wall. Now we go back past the fire. We get to the front door again, open it, go out into the hallway and close it behind us. And then out in the hallway, the smoke lifted a little bit. And I look and Lieutenant Coleman is cradling like a little, maybe six or seven year old girl. And, uh, you know, she was starting to come to start a little bit out of it, but she was otherwise, you know, okay. You know, it was one of those crazy stories. And, uh, like I said, I had two seasoned uh, firefighters with me and just, you know, like pros, we, we, uh, they got the kid out of there and, uh, you know, and it was one of those crazy stories. Like I said, I had completely forgotten about because uh, we come out and now the first two engine is there. The first two truck is there. They go in, they take over. Uh, we, we come out and hand off the little girl to an ambulance. And uh, next thing I remember is we're on the rig getting stuff and, uh, the chief kind of pulled Lieutenant Coleman off to the side. And it seemed to me like they were a little heated, like discussing it. Next, he comes back over and he gets on the rig. He goes, come on, let's go. And we just drove back to Red Hook and that was it. You know, like I, maybe the, they weren't happy that, you know, we took in the fire when, you know, on our own, you know, but, um, and it's the type of thing, you know, he, you know, flat out saved that little girl's life. He should have got a medal and, you know, it should have been a big deal. And we just went back to the firehouse and cooked dinner. And <laughs> it was just one of those crazy stories all in the day's work, you know? Right. And so, so he didn't get a medal over hurt feelings. Is that. I, or? you know, and I, 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 like I said, I completely forgot about that story until recently. And I, I ran into Lieutenant Coleman recently and I, I, I recounted it for him and I said, am I remembering it correctly? He goes, no, that's exactly how it happened. And uh, I said, well, were we in trouble? Is that why? Like, and he goes, no, no, they didn't care that much. And when it was done, you know, the other guys took over. So we just left. And, but, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe because we weren't assigned, they wouldn't put in for a medal for him. Or maybe, you know, he's just a very humble guy and didn't push the issue, you know, uh, Tom. And he just, like I said, he, you know, he, right. he's not looking for it. He just, you know, was happy that everything turned out well, you know. Right. That makes sense. I mean, I, I know him a little bit for you and that, that, that seems to make sense, but was that little girl alone? Was anybody else in there? I, I do remember that there were, uh, the police got involved. There were, uh, 
it seemed like they, they were starting to ask questions with neighbors and where the parent were, you know, so there was a little bit of, uh, I, I don't know if it was a controversy or, or I, again, like I said, we drove back to the firehouse and one of those things like, you know, in our job quite often, we don't know the next day, we don't know how things turned out, you know? So it's like, right. if it's not news, um, I never heard anything more about it. I, I think there was something to that because the police were asked were there asking around. Right. I guess that shows the importance of closing the door, right? I mean, without a hose line, you know, we always we see those commercials the FDNY well, puts out, well, but probably saved all your asses, right? Uh, you know, uh, Tom Coleman, he was heads up. That was not the SOP back then. They taught us in probing school. You, you force the door open, you chalk it open with the axe and you go in. Right. Uh, everyone else can find it. And uh, I think we you know, really didn't start to understand the, the thermodynamics of it, you know, until later. And it became more of the SOP that you you always keep that door closed until the hose line moves in, you know? Um, but that was a, you know, a call he made on his own and it was a right call. Right. And also I guess the importance of everybody having a radio. I mean, I, I remember that too, you know, there were engine positions that didn't have radios also, right. When we yeah. first started out, um, that might've been helpful <laughs> to be well, able you to know, it was, And I, I don't even think it was a money issue because quite often we had radios in the closet in the firehouse. Like it wasn't, I think they thought it was a radio discipline issue. You know, they didn't want too much yeah. chatter, you know, and they figured the can and the irons, they'd be standing right next to the officer anyway. But like an example like this, sometimes you're not, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I could see that. I mean, I, I've been to jobs where a lot of, a, a lot of radio transmissions could have been an email, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just me. All right. So, what made you want to go to SOC? Was it was it nine eleven itself? Because after you were after your rotation, right, you went back to one thirty one, and yeah. and nine eleven happened. So and obviously you took a big role in the firehouse, uh, being a family liaison for Christian's family. But uh, what what made you want to leave? Because that couldn't have been an easy decision at that point. It was hard to leave. You know, before nine eleven, I you know I, I always loved the firehouse uh, two seventy nine and one thirty one. I loved the guys there. And, you know, but I think maybe before 9-11, I had thoughts of, you know, going to the busiest place I could possibly be in. Or, you know, I worked uh, a couple of guys I worked with while I was out on rotation had formerly worked in sock companies, you know, and then transferred out later. And I always like picked their brain about, you know, that aspect of the job kind of always appealed to me, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and but then, you know, obviously 9-11 happened. Uh, you know, the firehouse, you know, it made us very close, like a fan, you know, we're always like a family of firehouse, but it would just, you know, made it even that much more so. And, and, uh, I, I didn't think I could ever leave there, you know, and definitely not, you know, the, as the months went by, you know, I, I didn't think about it much until right around maybe the new year, you know, and then, uh, it was actually Lieutenant Coleman again, and, uh, my captain, Captain, uh, Marty Ford, who, uh, you know, the two of them were great and they were always looking out for me. And uh, they they had saw something posted somewhere that uh, SOC, you know, because they were decimated, they they were just, you know, putting out a feeler for anyone, you know, across the job who might be interested. That, I think know, that was the department orders, if I remember right. Yeah, it was something along those lines. And um, and uh, Lieutenant Coleman called me in the office and he said, you know, I know in the past you would talk about stuff like this and... Uh, you know, are you still interested? We can, we can make an application for you. Um, you know, and it's definitely something I, I, I felt, you know, like working, you know, down on the pile, you know, during the recovery, you know, most, you know, in, in the initial weeks right afterwards, you remember like 
you know, most of us were just in bucket brigades, you know, and when you were rotated down there, you were in a bucket brigade, you know, and you wanted to help, you wanted to do as much as possible. And, you know, I saw the, the sock guys, you know, crawling into voids or, you know, rappelling down the sides of, uh, you know, cut beams to, to get into any little nook and cranny and, you know, doing stuff that, you know, in my mind that, you know, if anyone was going to find survivors, those were the guys who were going to find them. And right. I think like a lot of people, like, like everyone, um, you know, I wanted to do as much as possible after nine 11. I wanted to be in the thick of it and be the person, you know, doing that the next time, you know, cause we were all convinced, you know, there was going to be a next time, you know? Mm-hmm. So I right. think that was what, what really ultimately pushed me to, to transfer the sock. All right. I'll take that. Um, <laughs> so what, what happened once you got there? Was it, was it what you thought? I mean, a lot, sure. the firefighting stuff's the same, right? But what about the other stuff? You know, it, it was definitely everything I, I thought it would be. It, it was, um, it was challenging. You know, I went to squad one and, uh, the firehouse had lost 12 members on nine 11, which, you know, it's a single company. It's not a double house. And, uh, so basically half, the guys assigned there died in one day, you know, and that left, and then only left, you know, maybe 12 or 13, you know, alive to take care of all those families. And so it was a, a, you know, a much different dynamic as far as, uh, you know, or I should say a much more intensified dynamic of, you know, dealing with the loss and, and, uh, you know, most of the families I think hadn't even had a memorial or a funeral yet. So it was almost like starting over again. Whereas, you know, in 279 and 131, we had all of our memorials and uh, in like October and November. And now I, you know, I went to squad one and it was like, you start, you know, it, it was still, the bulk of them was still, uh, had, had yet to be planned yet, you know? So we, there was that going on and, and the, you know, uh, chance of the sector is just on any given tour within the firehouse, there's so much to learn with the, the tools on the rig and, you know, the, the technical gear and all that stuff. So you're just not going nonstop. And in a way that was good, you know, instead of you know, focusing solely on the loss and the rebuilding, there was, for me, it was just all this new stuff to learn, you know, the ropes, the rescue gear, the, you know, all the extrication equipment and all that stuff, you know? Right. That's cool. And you still got to, uh, you still got to do the firefighting stuff, which is what I, what I found, I mean, I know there's people listening who know the difference between squads and rescues, but for the layman, essentially rescue companies, they don't have hoses, right? So they, when they have their first due area, they operate as a ladder company. Um, And a squad company has the hose bed and a pumper. So they operate as an engine company in their area. So at least when you go to a squad, you still get to put fires out, right? Do you, do you, did you have any good nozzle jobs there? I think I had you know, just as a first two engine, uh, maybe one comes to mind in the neighborhood, you know, right down the block on Union Street. It was, you know, a couple blocks from the firehouse, you know, a couple of rooms of fire early in the morning. We got in by ourselves and uh, I had the nozzle. And uh, I think that was the only one. And then, you know, obviously being uh, working in a squad company also, it just, you know, sometimes at multiple alarm fires, you know, we ended up stretching a line by the orders of the chief or just relieving an engine company, you know? So, you know, you get, you get to operate as an engine in that capacity too. You know? Right. That's cool. Yeah. You, you, you get the world. 
Yeah. So now you were studying for lieutenant while you essentially when you first transferred there, right? So you were doing double studying essentially, like because I, I mean I, I remember I felt like I spent all my time off reading all those books, and I mean you could get a a, a bachelor's degree with the amount of classes you have to take to be in SOC, right? So yeah, to be honest, you, I didn't study much for lieutenant once I transferred to SOC. Um, no, I had you know I was single at the time. Yeah, uh, before 9-11 and uh, living by myself most of the time, you know. You did have a roommate there for a little bit. Waking up on the couch or something, you know. Right. Or in the guest bedroom. But uh, for the most part, you know, I had time to study then. So I knew, you know, and I figured I would use it to, you know, prepare for that. I didn't go crazy studying for lieutenant. I just, you know, a couple of chapters a week, you know, here or there I did, you know, I took the fire tech courses and whatever they told me to go over. I, you know, I just basically read in like the year, year and a half leading up to what was supposed to be the lieutenant's test in October of 2001. And then, uh, so that was really most of the studying I did. And then nine 11 happened and, you know, I didn't touch a book, like just about every, you know, nobody, nobody even opened the book. Right. And, I transferred to squad one and the same thing, like you said, there's so much to learn with the, uh, the sock equipment and, and the, the new gear and the new training that I really didn't do a whole lot. And then I think they announced, uh, the test was going to be in June of Oh two. And maybe a couple of weeks before the test, I just went back to the books and reviewed everything and took a few fire tech courses. You know, luckily it was a, that was a pretty straightforward test. Right. Uh, you know, not, not too many, uh, you know, crazy out of the blue questions. And I think, you know, and I got, you know, fairly middle of the road grade and, you know, I didn't have that much seniority. So I was, I was actually not that high up on the list, but, uh, there was so, there was still so many vacancies after 9-11. I think they promoted like 180 lieutenants the first day that they promulgated the list. Some, some crazy number like that. Yeah. So they moved pretty quick. I remember that. That was crazy. So you became a lieutenant. You were fairly young, right? Just six or seven years on the job. I, I don't remember how old you were, but you, you couldn't have been very old. Um, what was that like? Was it, was it, I always wondered that. Like, what, what was it like when you go to your first fire and, and you're in charge of four or five other guys? You know, is that intense? You know, I, was, was that... I was lucky. Uh, I, I went to the 15th division as a covering lieutenant. And Everywhere I went, uh, you know, I was treated very well. You know, I remember my first tour as a lieutenant. It was in 175 truck. And uh, Jerry Morrissey uh, was a senior man over there. And he was driving. He remembered me, you know, when I was on the rotation. I I had uh, rotated through that same battalion. So, uh, you know, he, he remembered me and he said, oh, I, today's your first tour. I said, yeah. And he goes, all right, you know, we got you. And, you know, they were great. You know, uh, respectful for the rank, but knew enough when, you know, and, you know, had, a, uh, you know, in, in a way, you know, like a two way street, they, you know, the, the officer, you know, takes care of the guys, but the guys take care of the officer, you know, and they, they looked out and, and it was, you know, I think, uh, working with a lot of good senior chauffeurs like that got me through that, you know? Yeah. I, I think that is, uh, for, for my money, I think. A good senior man is is the heart of the job, right? They're the most important 
important people that we have. I mean, I remember I, I was lucky. I had two two legends essentially at my first firehouse, right? I had Bill Whalen in Engine Two Sixteen and Warren Ward. I mean, Warren Warren did like forty years on the job. The guy invented five or six of the tools that we use. You know, it's just a wealth of knowledge. I mean, I, I can remember at like four in the morning, you'd hear uh, the tools going off in the back of the rig. And you go down there to check it out and it's Warren back there cleaning a Halligan or, you know, tinkering with something. But those guys, right, those are the guys that really pass on the tradition. And, and sure. make sure. Generally speaking, you know, officers kind of pass through places, but the, the, the senior, you know, firefighters, they're the ones that, you know, they're the backbone of the company. They're just like the military, right? They say the, uh, the non-commissioned officers are the backbone of the military. I think the senior members of the companies are the backbone of the company. They set the tone, they set the tradition. Right. Absolutely. But that's something you do a good job of now. I mean, you're the captain of a, of a very historic company, right? You guys are, how old you is your company? I think uh, 1889, they started the company. 1889 in, in the heart of Soho in Manhattan. Um, and, and I've always been impressed with your, your level of detail and your, your, I guess, desire to keep that history and keep the connection between the new guys and the old guys. And I think that's cool. But there's one story I don't know if people know about. Um, member of your company saved a little girl uh, in the 80s, I think. And yeah. uh, you, you you helped reunite them. Can you tell us that story? I answered the phone. That's about. Oh, <laughs> <I'll> stop. <laughs> uh, Eugene Puglisi, uh, he's a Vietnam vet Marine. Um, did, I think, 25 years with the fire department or 27 years with the fire department, longtime member of Ladder 20. Started in Engine 27, I believe, on Chamber on Franklin Street, and then they shut them in the 70s, and uh, he came to 20 Truck. And um, so he, he did over 20 years, I think, in uh, Ladder 20, and in the 80s, they, they were on a water leak, and he was the chauffeur, I believe, and uh, the company was on a water leak on Wooster Street and, and somebody in one of the uh, neighboring buildings came running out to the rig and said, oh, there's a fire in, in my building. So Eugene, you know, I think he had like, a, you know, the blue quilted buff coat uh, jacket on and his helmet and a, and a halogen in his hand. And uh, he ran in, you know, he called his office to let him know. He ran up and followed the, the guy who came out to tell him and went up to the apartment and uh, he crawled in and found a little girl in a crib and, and and pulled her out and gave her, he gave her CPR uh, at the scene, mouth to mouth and revived her and uh, handed her to, the, to an ambulance. There was actually a picture of him holding uh, the baby on the cover of the Daily News back in, you know, 1982, 83, whenever it happened. And then uh, to complete the circle of, of the story, during uh, the height of the COVID pandemic, when New York was, you know, being decimated, uh, nurses from around the country volunteered. So this woman, uh, uh, Deidre, she came from, uh, I think her family was living down south somewhere in, uh, in Virginia, and she came to volunteer to be an ER nurse in Brooklyn uh, during COVID. And one night uh, she was talking to some firefighters in the ER. She says, oh, you know, FDNY, uh, when, I, when I was a little girl, a uh, uh, New York firefighter saved my life at a fire in in Soho, and the guys were like flabbergasted at, at this story, and they're like, "Well, you, you have to call it." You know? yeah. So they gave a number to the firehouse, and it just so happens uh, I answered the phone uh, the next morning, and 
she's explaining it to me, you know, uh, and meanwhile, you know, I, I knew the story because, you know, we have uh, Eugene got got a medal that year. We have the medal citation you know, right outside the office store with his picture and all. And, you know, I just kind of I was familiar with the story and she's telling the story. I was like, oh, yeah, I, I do know, you know what you're talking about. And then I think because it was so long ago, she she was almost timid to ask, like, Eugene, is, is he still around? Does he, you know, she didn't know how to ask, you know, and I was, you know, I was like, Eugene, he, we see him three times a week, you know, <laughs> he comes here, he drinks our coffee, he eats our cake and parks out front. Yeah. He could um, be a stool. I'll, I'll call him right now. And uh, she <laughs> couldn't believe it, you know? And uh, I, I remember uh, I hung up with her and I called uh, Gene and I told him, about the phone call and, and there was silence. And, uh, I thought, I thought I dropped the call and, uh, and he, he couldn't, he couldn't get the words out to, you know, he was, he was choked up and, uh, it was great. They, uh, the daily news did a, a follow-up story about it. They did zoom reunion because of COVID. And then, uh, a year later, this, this past summer, they met at the firehouse. They had a in-person reunion. It, it was really nice. And she, she was a helicopter pilot in the military and Eugene was a worked on a helicopter crew in Vietnam. So they had that military uh, connection. So it was, it was pretty wild. That's crazy. And, and she became a nurse, right? And came here to help during a pandemic, which is yeah. even better, right? That's, uh, that's, that, that, that's a good story, right? Those are the ones. Uh, with the job, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know we both have our share of bad ones. Um, another thing, I you know, we we stress positivity, or I try to, you know, even though, as I said, we both have seen our, our share of bad stuff on the job. Um, we had the Nav, uh, who fancies himself a poet, uh, on the first episode. Last week we had Joe, who left the job to put himself through law school. Um, and he's out there doing his thing. Um, but I think what a lot of people don't know is, is all the different types that we have on the job, right? It takes all types to make a firehouse, all types of firefighters. And you, I, I mean, I would say you have to be one of the high, highest educated firefighters I've ever met. Um, you have two master's degrees, right? One in, is it political science? Yeah. And, and one in Italian, which I still don't understand how you did that. Um, you've written three books. Um, I just, firstly, my, I guess my question is, how are your books received in the firehouse? Secondly, uh, how did you do it? How did you find the time to, to put yourself through grad school twice? Uh, and you got your bachelor's degree after you were on the job, or both bachelor's degrees. Um, yeah. So... You know, I, I don't like to ask double barrel questions, but go ahead. Give me a break. I mean, I, I, just, could, I could do whatever I want. <laughs> you know, uh, I, we we all find things, I think, at the right time in our life. In uh, the early 90s, I uh, started taking college classes, and I think I just had other pursuits at the time. You know, I stopped to, you know, start working as a truck driver and then the police academy and then ultimately the fire academy. You know, I, I knew... I think I wanted to set myself up more in my career in the nineties. And it wasn't until later after I was on the fire department a couple of years that I decided, you know what, I think uh, I would like to finish college, you know, and that's, that's what pushed me to go back. And uh, once I started, I just kind of got a taste for it. And I enjoyed taking classes, you know, it was, 
you know, it was fun for me. It was, it was, I never felt like it was work. I liked writing, you know, I liked writing, working on term papers and handing them in and getting the feedback from the professors. And um, so I never really felt like work. And I just, once I started, I, you know, I started, I studied political science because I liked that, that aspect of it. The, it's almost history with a dash of philosophy and, and, you know, and, uh, and I, you know, I, I wanted to, keep going with that so you know i just applied to a master's program for that and then uh the italian just kind of came out of uh just wanting to learn the language you know traveling in italy and then meeting Teresa. you know she grew up in italy and speaking italian and uh, you know wanting to go back there with her i just i wanted to to learn it so uh i started taking undergraduate classes uh in italian just to to, to learn how to speak you know better and once I, I took all the undergrad classes, I just decided I was at Hunter. I just, for the, you know, just for the heck of it, I applied to the master's program and, uh, you know, the professors were great over there. It was, I enjoyed the classes and going to school a couple of nights a week. So that's what I did. So pre-kids. Pre <laughs> yeah, obviously. So when you, when you wrote your first novel, right, that had to be a bit tense. I don't know. Tense is the right word, but you had to be a bit worried about how it was going to be received at the kitchen table, right? Because, you know, yeah. No, guys have been all been good about it. You know, like, you know, uh, you know, like any, anything else. If, if, if there's jokes about everything, but that's that's all good. Um, I don't. I've never really had. Uh, you know, I, I think the guys have all been uh, great. You know, they've. You know, if. Uh, somebody asked about it or, you know, uh, you know, ha happens to have read one of my books and they, they, you know, they want to talk about it. They're always, uh, you know, I love that, you know, like, like everyone else in the job, I love sharing my interest and, you know, getting to know them and them getting to know me, you know, so it's all been good. All right. Not as exciting as I, as I had hoped. Um, <laughs> But along those lines, I know you're a bit of a, you're quiet, but I know you're a bit of a prankster. So do you mind telling everybody what your favorite firehouse prank is that you ever pulled off? Uh, or, or witnessed? You can give credit uh, where it's due. The best one I think I ever witnessed, it, it backfired on, uh, on, you know, the, uh, the prankster involved, but, uh, those are the best kinds. Let's hear it. And, uh, I, I'm not going to change any names because nobody's innocent. Uh, <laughs> we were, I was uh, rotating in uh, 231. And, uh, you know, they, they, they're very uh, big on roll call there at the change of tours. Once the bell rings at 1800, everyone goes out in front of the rigs and you exchange information and drill and talk about stuff. You know, it usually takes 20 minutes, sometimes a half hour, depending on what's going on. So right before the change of tours, uh, Pat Delina from, from 231 was eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you know, on a roll and a cup of coffee. And then roll call uh, starts. So he, he left everything on the table and we went out and had roll call. And then uh, next thing you know, about a half hour later, we go back in the kitchen and he sits back down in the same spot and there's this half-eaten peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And Pat was the, the biggest prankster in the entire firehouse. So, you know, and if he was a target, it's only because he, you know, he brought it on himself because he, no one was safe when he was around from buckets of water, anything. So uh, he takes a bite into his peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And all of a sudden he makes a face. I'm watching him and he pulls it out. And there's a, a wet 
you know, the brown paper towels that are the recycled paper towels that are in every firehouse. The, right. the square. Uh, there's a wet paper towel in the sandwich, and and he's pulling it out. You know, and we're looking at it. He's like, "What is this?" You know, he's like making a face, and sitting at the end of the table was uh, the chief's aide, Charlie Van Rossen, uh, who you know ended up being the captain of Eleven Truck. Uh, he did like. 40 years on the job, Charlie. He's a great guy. But at that time, he was driving the 4-4 battalion. And uh, he starts giggling uncontrollably at the <laughs> end. Hero poker face, you know? So, uh, so he's at the end. Of the, he's holding his side. He's laughing so hard. He can't, he can't stop. So Pat looks at him. He goes, Charlie, do you know what this is? And, and Charlie's laughing. He goes, no, I don't know. He goes, you did this, didn't you? And he goes, no, I swear. But he can't stop laughing. So Patrick, you know, puts the, the sandwich in the garbage, puts the plate in the dishwasher and walks out of the kitchen. That's it. So uh, usually uh, the, the chief's car, it was a big apparatus floor, 231, 120, 44. And the chief's car is parked in between the, the two rigs uh, in the middle. And usually when a run would come in, if, uh, if everybody uh, was going, uh, the aide would come down, get the car started, you know, get everything set up and wait. And then the chief would come down the stairs and close the two doors and then get in the car. So a run comes in like maybe an hour or so later, the phone alarm, everybody goes. And Charlie, for whatever reason, must have been on the third floor in the bathroom. The chief comes down first. So the chief gets down the stairs and gets in the car and closes the door. And Charlie's, you know, run, playing catch now. He slides on a pole, he grabs his radio, but instead of getting in the car and starting it, he just, you know, he wanted to power up the computer. He just reached into the car while he was putting his radio on and fixing himself. He reached in the car and started it. And as soon as he started the ignition, you know, an explosion of, you know, white powder blew out the, uh, all of the vents on the dashboard. <laughs> and Chief, uh, Chief Scanlon jumps out of the car covered in dust from head to toe. <laughs> and uh, it turns out, you know, Pat thinking he was going to get Charlie because the aide always started the car and waited for the chief. Right. You know, he filled the vents with uh, baby powder and then meticulously wiped them clean, pointed them forward and turned the, everything on high. So when he started, it would it would get the aide, but uh, it backfired. It got the chief. <laughs> but now we have the phone on for a fire and, and we had to go. So, <laughs> so we all we all get there and there's the chief, you know, and yeah, he was an old school guy, uh, Scanlon, you know, uh, and uh, he never said a word to anybody. He just stood in front of the building, taking reports on his radio. It, it wasn't a fire. It, I, you know, it turned out to be, you know, nothing big, but uh, he's taking reports. He's got hair covered in powder, his uniform, everything. <laughs> so that was the backfire of it. One of the funniest <laughs> things. <laughs> why, why would he have put it in the chief side though? No, I think it was just, he got a little overzealous and he put so much in there that it just, you know, collateral damage, you know, <laughs> anyone <laughs> the car was getting coded. You know? It was the anger probably. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I remember my, uh, I, I mean, I had a few good buckets in my day, you know, not to give myself too much credit. Uh, but my favorite bucket of all time had to be Tom Westman. Uh, you remember he won survivor. If, if you've yeah. watched, if you watch Survivor and remember there was a firefighter who won, he was my lieutenant. And so one day where uh, People Magazine comes by to do a photo shoot with him, with all the guys and everyone's all dressed up to the nines. He's all clean shaven and looking handsome. And they're taking pictures out front. 
And I looked over at Glenn Tracy, who was the senior man in, in 108. And I just looked at him and he gave me the, the slight <laughs> nod. So I said, that's a, that's a commissioned hit, right? The senior man just gave me the nod. So I run upstairs, freaking fill up my bucket. I jump up on the roof. All the guys clear out and there's Tom standing there. People Magazine taking all the shots. And I just, boom, I hit him. I don't think a drop hit the floor. And all I remember is the look on his face because it was plastered on, on, uh, on the page on People Magazine. My, my hit made, made the papers. So uh, that was my proudest uh, That's a good <laughs> bucket. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's nothing he could do. You know, nothing anybody could do about it. Uh, he, he, knows, he knows he earned it. So. <laughs> Plus he retired, so he couldn't really retaliate against me anyway. But from what I hear, he was the firehouse prankster in his day. So I think he, uh, I think he took it well, <sighs> but, uh, all right. I know, I know we, we both have a lot of stories we could tell. Uh, we could probably go on for another two hours, but, uh, I promised I wasn't going to talk about nine 11 in every episode, but it's my show and you're my brother. And I have to ask you this cause I, I never have, um, on 9-11, I've told this story before. Well, backstory is you kind of forced me to take the test. I mean, let's not let's not kid ourselves. Um, I remember you signed me up. I was at up at Hobart, got my shirt on. I was up at Hobart. I was 19, I think. And you said, listen, uh, you got to come home. The test is whatever day it was, Saturday, whatever. It goes, and if you don't come home and take it, you got to pay me back the 60 bucks. That's what you told me. So uh, 60 bucks to a college sophomore was a lot of money. So I said, all right, fuck it. I guess I'll go take the test. Um, you know, I, I really didn't think about being a fireman like, like you did. Uh, you know, the only memories I had was our first line of duty funeral. Um, Phil Diodamos when I was five years old, I remember watching it from the classroom window in PS 11. Um, uh, our mother wouldn't let me go. She made me go to school that day, even though it was her best friend's husband. But, uh, and the teacher must have known that we were family friends because she let me stand in the little window, which overlooked St. Anne's Church. Anyway, that was the only memory I had of, of the fire department as a kid. But uh, on 9-11, um, I've mentioned this before. When I was on the Verrazano Bridge, I called you because uh, I didn't know what to do. And you advised me to go home and get my gear and go to a firehouse where you could have said, pretty much anything right you could have told me to go to 131 and grab your second set because it's literally what a couple miles from the trade center it's just right on the other side of the tunnel uh what was that because i was your brother and you were worried or like i always wondered because a lot of guys would have just said keep going you know yeah uh, i i believe i asked you if you had your gear i don't remember because you had your hockey stuff with you right you were going to try out for the hockey team Right. I, I do remember, I think, asking you if you had your gear in, in the trunk or whatever, and you said, no, it's home. And then I think I, I, I said, you should go home and call the academy, right? Because you hadn't started at your firehouse yet. You were, no, I hadn't even, I hadn't even dropped off my cake yet. I assume maybe, you know, that they would want all the probies, like, together to, like, some kind of special detail or, you know, relief somewhere or, you know, at, as a unit, you know? I, I think about, I, I actually do think about that phone call a lot, you know, because... I think even at the time, I, I, I almost said go to Rescue 5 and 160 because right. uh, it's right I think there too. Were, yeah. Right near there. And 
with the division up there, I figured maybe the division would, would, would put you on a bus or, you know, or if you would hop on a rig and go, you know, whenever they were dispatched right. from there. So, but I, I think the determining factor was that you didn't have your gear. And I, I, I didn't even think of like, you would borrow gear that you should just go get your gear. You know, right. that was probably the determining factor at the moment. I, uh, I'll be honest with you. Before the first tower collapsed, I don't, I don't remember consciously thinking of, uh, you know, a complete collapse as a, you know, viable, you know, as a real possibility at the moment, just from what I was, you know, I saw it on the news and said, all right, I got to get to my firehouse and I got it. We got to get there, you know, but it was, it wasn't until I got to the firehouse and I saw Mike Golden by the house watch. And, uh, he told me, uh, one of the towers had collapsed and I, that, I think that was, I don't remember thinking about collapse before that moment, you know? So I, right. I, I thought, you know, we all need to get as close as possible. I, I was thinking, you know, so I, I think it was more that I just wanted you to go get your gear, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, we might've spoken one more time after that. I think before you might've been on the scene. I, I don't remember. I, I think, I think I remember talking to you one more time after that. But, uh, you know, last week I had Joe on and he was talking about how he couldn't get in touch with Mike. He knew Mike was there. Um, but I never really had those. Like, I knew you were there, but I never had that feeling like Joe says he had, uh, you know, that he knew Mike was gone. Like, I, I knew when I was there, one of my main concerns was finding you. Um, but it wasn't something like I, I didn't have like a, a gut feeling that you were dead. You know, I just needed to see you uh, i don't know if i ever told you this but i think it was the next day or one of those next days i still hadn't talked to you uh, spoken to you and i just remember i stopped by 131 and i was like you know where's andy i i haven't heard from him and they said he's in the bunk room and it was probably early morning like 10 11 o'clock and i went in the bunk room and, and i turned on all the lights and i just went around to every bunk and i i leaned over it and looked at your face and your face was covered in fucking dust. And I just remember I saw you, your lungs move up and down and that was enough. And I shut the light and left. Uh, I don't know if I ever told you that, but that that's how I confirmed that you were still alive. Yeah. I, yeah. I didn't know that. that. That had to be the the morning of the 12th. I think when we, cause we were there, you know, all through the night we got back. Yeah. So that I, makes sense. Cause I think I, I got back to Staten Island and got my car and then I drove out to, 136 which is in elmhurst queens and then i'm on my way back from 136 because they said go home and come back tomorrow so i'm on my way back from 136 i think i stopped by 131 it must um, have been I, me and joe thompson we were there uh together over over the night and we got back at like 9 a.m 10 a.m somewhere around there and then uh i went and like i had been up for over 24 hours so that that's when i, I went to the bunk room so that that makes sense all right well I'm I'm glad uh, glad you made it. <laughs> so, all right. I know uh, <clears throat> I know we're definitely gonna have you on again. Um, I say this every week now, but uh, I think you got a lot more stories in there. Uh, Twenty three years now on the fire department. Um, hopefully, the next time we talk, you'll be retired and enjoying it with my. Uh, with my niece and nephew um, and you could speak a little bit more freely, but 
I just want to say thanks. Uh, thanks for the good advice uh, on 9-11. Thanks for forcing me to come home and take the test. Um, well, some days I don't thank you for that. I got to be honest. But, uh, you know, we're here, right? Um, so, yeah, man. Thanks for coming on. Um, yeah. I know. Uh, I know there's a lot more questions I got to ask you, but I got to let you go. But uh, if there's anything else you want to uh, tell the, oh yeah, what we should tell the people out there is Andy wrote a memoir about 9-11 called Finding John. If you haven't picked it up yet, it's on Amazon. Uh, it's also been released in Italian for our Italian listeners out there. Um, and the beautiful part about this book is all the proceeds go to the Ray Pfeiffer Foundation. Uh, it's something that's important to both of us. Um, and I think it's really cool that, that, and he did that and is doing that. Um, but also, I think his story uh, is important for people to hear. I think it's important for people to know uh, all different perspectives of 9-11. And I think his is a very powerful and poignant one. And I believe it's something that needs to be told uh, for the metaphor truck, right? Um, so check that out. And uh, what else you got, Andy? Anything else, out, anything else coming up that you want people to know about? No, I think uh, I think you you covered it all. I think, uh, it was you know. Um, thanks for having me on the show. It's nice talking. You know, and, uh, we'll hash more out. I think over you know, maybe a, a glass of scotch or uh, you know, and we'll, we'll we'll plan the next one. All right, I'm looking forward to that too. All right, so we're gonna say goodbye to Captain Andrew Sarah for now, but uh, you know, stay tuned because you'll he'll be back. Hi guys, and welcome to Frankie's Firehouse Feast. Today we are making my Uncle Andy's buttermilk fried chicken sandwich. Soak boneless chicken thighs in buttermilk for half an hour. Then coat it with flour and fry in vegetable oil. Serve on a brioche bun with pickles and aioli sauce. Coleslaw and grilled corn as sides. Salt, pepper, and maybe even Cajun pepper the flour. Brush each ear of corn with olive oil, then place them on the grill. Cook for 10 minutes, turning often until the corn starts turning brown. While the corn grills, combine sour cream, Greek yogurt, Parmesan cheese, taco seasoning, lime juice, and salt in a bowl. When it's done grilling, Brush the corn with the sour cream mixture, then sprinkle each ear with cilantro, shredded parmesan, and lime juice. Chow's on! Well, thank you, Frankie. That certainly sounds delicious. Now I'm in the mood for some corn. Thanks to Andy for coming on. Not only for always being a great brother, but also a great role model. You set a great example for me, and... uh, And I really appreciate it. And I'm very lucky to have had you uh, to pave the way. You've always given me great advice. I remember when I was in the academy and I was addressing my fear of heights. um, And I wasn't sure, you know, how I was going to get through it. You know, the, the, the day when you first have to climb the aerial ladder. And then the day when you first have to do a single slide off the side of the building. You know, I wasn't sure I could do it. You know, I, I was struggling. I was 21 having trouble believing in myself and uh and and you sat me down and 
and you explain to me, you know, that it's all right to be afraid. Um, and that's what true bravery is, is, is addressing those fears and, 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 you know, being afraid of something, but doing it anyway is, is part of the job. And that's, you know, we all have our things that scare us, or at least we should. And I just remember that, that little talk we had and it really affected me for the rest of my career. But, uh, so I remember going into the academy, uh, on the day when it was my turn to slide off the side of the building. And I think the instructor could see, uh, you know, a little hesitation in my face. So as I was straddling the parapet, he said, hey, kid, do your parents like bagpipes? And I said, I don't know. Why? He goes, because they're going to be hearing at your funeral if you fuck this up. So uh, I laughed, slid down the side of the building. And uh, from there on in, it was fun. You know, uh, I, I actually started enjoying it. Um, but it was all because of that little talk uh, from my big brother. It reminds me of another fear that I've had my whole life, which is public speaking, you know, um, which may seem odd now that I'm hosting a podcast. But earlier on, um, this was probably my biggest fear was having to speak to in, in, in rooms full of people or in front of people. And uh, it all came to a head at my mother's funeral. Um, I was 15 and I had to give a eulogy and I was scared, um, but I knew I had to do it. I knew I owed it to her to do it. Um, and I knew what she had taught me, you know. Um, and I got up there and I bombed. Um, you know, I mean, I, I guess a 15-year-old can't really uh, uh, kill it, as they say, uh, at his mother's funeral. But, uh, you know, I was nervous. Uh, I, I didn't look up from my notes. And, and I actually learned a lot uh, that day. Um, but I learned a lot from my mom you know, and I, I, I want to share this story because I think it's, it's a powerful story, not just for me, but, but for little girls everywhere and for women everywhere. Um, because that's, that's the kind of trailblazer my mother was, you know, um, I want to say it was about 1988. My brother was 12 years old and he was playing at Staten Island Little League and my father was his coach. Um, my father ended up suffering a, a very uh, gross injury. Uh, he stepped on a nail and it went completely through his foot, um, I remember. And it, it got infected pretty bad. He needed surgery. Uh, he had a hole in his foot. It looked kind of like a, a stigmata. Um, but anyway, he couldn't coach my brother's team anymore. And, you know, they, they asked all the other parents and nobody would step up. So my mother did. You know, she had experience coaching. She coached the girls softball um, and she was good at it. You know, she took her uh, her all star team to the state championship game, uh, which is no no minor feat. But uh, now she was coaching the boys, and uh, in the major leagues at Staten Island Little League, um, and it was kind of a big deal. And it wasn't received very well. You know, um, I'm not sure if it's still there, but at that time, Staten Island Little League had a bar in the outfield. Uh, there was a men's club. So I remember, you know, I would always be in my spot next to the dugout. Uh, keeping score um, because I couldn't get enough of baseball. And I just remember the heckling, you know, they would, they would, they would heckle her and they would say nasty things to her. And she would never even look out to the outfield where they were standing. Um, she just kept coaching her way. You know, she would let all the kids play. She would give uh, the worst kid on the team a chance at shortstop. Um, she would let the, the, the slowest kid on the team try to steal bases Um and slowly but surely, it started to work. You know, those kids gained confidence. Um, they started playing well. And they ended up in the championship game. 
Um, and ch- I remember that day like it was yesterday. I was in my usual spot. And then there all the men were up out in the outfield yelling nasty things and, and being obscene, you know, in, in, a, in essentially a playground full of children. And, uh, you know, her team went out there and they had fun and they fucking won. They won the Staten Island Little League Championship, a woman. And she went out there. She shook hands with everybody and she didn't say a word. She just stood there proudly with her team. And, uh, and you know, her silence spoke volumes to me, you know. She didn't do anything with her words. She just kept doing her thing and proved to everybody that she could fucking do it. That it didn't matter if she was a woman, a man. That, that all it took was for her to believe in her players. And that, in turn, made them believe in themselves. So I learned that from her, you know, through her example. This isn't things she ever told me. These are just things that I witnessed. So when I stood up there, you know, in front of that church full of people, you know, I was scared and uh, I didn't think I could do it. And, and I did it. You know, I, I got somehow got the words out. Like I said, it, it wasn't the best speech I've ever given, but it was a speech. And just the fact that I, that I mustered up enough uh, intestinal fortitude to get up there in front of those people and do it. That says more about her than it does about me. Uh, she was a very special woman. And I'm glad that I get to tell the world about her and people get to hear these stories. And I hope that in the future, people get to hear more. And I hope that my girls get to hear more about their grandmother because she was badass. And I hope that they grow up to be little badasses themselves. Um, I think they're on their way. Uh, as you can see in this show, they're doing their thing. and uh, And I'm proud of them. But... My mother set a great example for me, and that's what I decided that I need to do for my kids, is set the example through my actions. Uh, So I thank my mother for that, uh, for passing that on to me and my brothers, and uh, I hope we make her proud every day. We miss her tremendously, but her love is still here with us. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Check us out on social media. If you haven't subscribed yet, go to thefirefighters.us or wherever you get your podcasts. You can check us out. We're now on Patreon at patreon.com slash thefirefighterspodcast. To all you parents out there, keep setting that example for your kids. They're always watching. Be well. Take care of each other. And as always, stay low, my friends.